Welcome to Water Talks. My name is Tracy Metz. I'm on a ferry from the southern tip of Manhattan to Governor's Island to talk about oysters. More about that in a minute. We started the series talking about too much water, but we're making things even worse for ourselves. On average, the water that we do have is getting dirtier and dirtier, and it's our own fault. It's gotten to the point that many great rivers all over the world are so polluted that they are no longer drinkable or swimmable. Okay, start over on this bit. Here in New York, the water quality is getting better, but after a heavy rain, the sewers still overflow into the New York Harbor. Yuck. Water quality has also improved in the Netherlands, but just like many other European countries, it is not yet up to European standards. An independent advisory council recently warned that the Netherlands risk getting fined by the EU if we don't clean up our act. And it's not just the Netherlands. There's less and less clean water everywhere in the world. But this show is full of people who are working to fix it. Let's meet them. This is Water Talks. Water Talks is a podcast about the 2023 United Nations Conference on Water and the New York Water Week, made possible by the Dutch Ministry of Infrastructure and Water Management. This series of five programs is about the weather, and to be more specific, about water. Too much of it, too little, too dirty, and too unequal. This is the fourth episode. We're calling this one Too Dirty. The ferry terminal is filled this morning with a whole bunch of noisy school kids who are also on their way to Governor's Island. They go to a special high school there called the New York Harbor School, where they learn all sorts of things about the maritime world. I'm going to find out about something called the Billion Oyster Project. We realized that if you had a billion oysters in New York Harbor, that it could filter the standing volume of New York Harbor in three days. That is Katie Mosher. Senior Director of Programs of the Billion Oyster Project. The plan is to bring back a billion oysters in 2035, to clean the water, to restore habitat, and to reinforce the shore against the next hurricane. Once upon a time, there already were a billion oysters in the harbor. It took less than a hundred years of unbridled pollution to wipe them out. Now, this foundation is working to bring the oysters back. So they're teaching students at the New York Harbor School and thousands of volunteers how to do it. Oysters were very popular. Everybody ate oysters. It was just like the hot dog is now. So there were vendors on street corners and everybody ate them. And before that, of course, Native Americans were, it was a big part of their culture. And so um, the resources were much more plentiful and accessible. What happened by around 1850 was that there were no limits on the pollution. And the industrial and the sewage pollution really contaminated the product. So by 1920s, the beds were shut down. So they were no longer able to harvest and eat those oysters. That continued right up until the passage of the Clean Water Act in the 1970s. And at that point, we really started to see a change. Our goal is to restore oyster reef habitat 
with New Yorkers and through that process, teach people what the natural habitat should and can look like. Are there then two aspects to this? They're building artificial reefs with oyster shells. Right. And there's the actual cultivating live oysters. Yeah. So in terms of the restoration program, we partner with over 70 restaurants in New York City. We've collected almost two and a half million pounds of oyster shells. Here on Governor's Island, we have mountains of oyster shells that are over your head, and these shells are collected after diners are done with their oysters on the half shell. We have trucks that drive around and do that collection. So the restaurants, they don't throw the shells away. They put them somewhere in safekeeping for the truck driver? Exactly. So this is a process that they're committing to because they not only believe in the process of restoration and connecting the diners to the restoration project and that regenerative process, but it also diverts waste materials from the waste stream, keeps those materials out of the landfill, and lets the shells go back into use in the harbor. It's a whole cycle. The project has developed an entire process for using empty shells as a basis for new oysters and new offshore reefs. They clean them, and then they add what they call spat, that's baby oyster larvae, which nestle on the empty shells. This incredible team has devised a system to use repurposed shipping containers as a way to create these spat-on-shell oysters. So they load the collected shell or other reef-building materials into the container, fill it with water, and then release a tiny little pouch like the size of your fist of oyster larvae into the water. The larvae swim around and for a few days they're just they're planktonic. They're just drifting in the water and they're eating, right? So we're cycling in water directly out of New York Harbor that's full of algae. And then over the course of a few days, they'll find a spot in the tank where they say, I'm gonna stay here and they'll settle down. They'll attached to the shell, and that becomes then materials that we can lift out of the container, either loose shell or a structure, and place strategically on the water on the harbor bottom. So the repurposed sea containers don't go into the harbor. They're just the nursery. Right. It's like a big bathtub. It's where the oysters are set onto the materials. And then we'll use a crane aboard a barge and that will lift the materials out and place it exactly where we want it. So these reefs are both wave breakers and nurseries for new oysters. Yeah, the reefs are not designed to break waves, but I do want to tell you about a very special project that we're working on called the Living Breakwaters Project. So the Living Breakwaters Project was designed in response to the damage caused by Hurricane Sandy. And when that happened in Staten Island, where most of the damage occurred, lives were lost, the shoreline was destroyed, neighborhoods were demolished. There was a contest to solicit ideas to change the shoreline in ways that would soften the impact of large storms. Oyster reefs alone aren't going to do that, but a breakwater that's more substantial in size and very substantial, many feet high, can do that. It can change the energy and the direction of the waves. And those changes will impact what's happening on the shore. So you're not going to have the same level of energy as the waves come through, 
You're not going to have the same amount of erosion. And that's great. But we also want to make sure that we're not just putting rocks in the water. We want them to mimic a natural habitat. And so that's where oysters come in. I rode around the island on a golf cart and met some of the volunteers who clean the oyster shells and get them ready to go back into the harbor. They're building the cages in which the oysters will be spread throughout the harbor. We're uh, doing interviews. Hi. Where are you guys from? From Amsterdam. No, you came all the way here to interview us? Yes. What, just us? Yes. Wow. Yeah. I'm flattered. Good. <laughs> the project leader for all the volunteers, and there are lots of them, is Johnny. He's been doing this for 10 years. Today they're working in and around what used to be an elegant villa for Navy officers living on Governor's Island. There are often helicopters overhead, as much a typical New York sound nowadays as the sirens. This is Tracy. Tracy. Yep. Hello. Pleasure to meet you. Hello. Johnny. Hello, Hello Johnny. Education manager. Yeah. yeah, so today we have a public group. Um, so it's just random, I don't want to say New Yorkers, but people from all over. So we're just going to be building some gabions, which do it. Um, what is a gabion, John? A gabion is pretty much a structure that we have made out of mesh steel. We'll build this structure and eventually it'll get welded together in a frame where we would then apply like spat on shell, which is baby oysters on blank shell. And once that's done, we'll put them in into uh, some tanks, let them grow for a bit. Afterwards, we'll then deploy them into the New York City waters, which could be in multiple different sites. So the gabions, if I understand, are the cages? Yeah. That you put the shells in and then add the baby oysters and hope that they find their place? Yeah, yeah. absolutely, yeah. And do you monitor them? Are you involved yeah, in that so, too? Yeah, so we pull them out and we would actually, so we have these quadrants where it's just like little sample sections that we would want to count how many oysters is in that section, count how many are alive, how many are dead, and... Can you tell from looking? Yeah. If they're open, like if they seem a little cracked, they're most likely dead. They should not be like that, if, especially out of the water. They should be shut. You know, it should be really hard for them to be open. That That's the easiest way to tell. But did you know also, all this when you started here? I did not. <laughs> I did not. I mean, I knew about oysters, but I know that they were filter feeders. I didn't know that they were keystone species or anything like that. So... I actually went to the New York Harbor School, which is the school that kind of started Billion Oyster Project. So that's where I learned a lot about oysters. And it's pretty interesting to just see the progress that they can do. (laughs) Good Lord, those helicopters. Anyway, as Katie Mosher explained, the shells are collected from restaurants that keep them in dedicated buckets until trucks come to collect them. On the island, there are enormous piles of blank shells waiting to be picked clean by the sun and by birds. Then they go into big tumblers for the last round of cleaning. This is what it sounds like when I walk over one of those big crunchy piles. Sadly, the New York Harbor is flooded by sewage dozens of times a year, and that makes the oysters unfit for human consumption. So actually, their role in life is to clean the water, although you could eat them if they would just fix the sewer issue. 
True, the water in the harbor has gotten cleaner over the years, clean enough to grow oysters, and there have even been dolphins sighted. But there is still a long way to go. What a shame. It is a shame. It's a horrible shame. And it's really one of the biggest reasons why we're here. About 70 times a year, there is a rain event that will trigger a combined sewer overflow. Over 500 million gallons of untreated sewage every time are being sent into New York Harbor's waters. They then consume water that may have bacteria in them that would make it unsafe to eat. We don't want poop in our water, but that's what we have. It means that it's also a problem for people. When it rains, you can't go swimming. When it rains, you probably don't want to get in your kayak, right? Because you're going to be exposed to splashing water. It means that you're going to smell it. But isn't then the overhaul of the sewage system a much more important element in restoring the quality of the New York Harbor than the billion oysters? It's not just New York Harbor that has this problem. Coastal infrastructure is aging. It's expensive to repair. It's a really big problem to solve. But then you can't harvest the oysters and eat them. They just go there to live and die. But they're doing a great amount of work, right? An individual oyster can filter a lot of water. But the system that's created when you create a whole reef structure is a much more lasting impact than the water quality filtration that happens alone in a single day. So over time, those reefs are going to continue to grow and they're going to continue to create new larvae as the baby oysters grow into adult oysters. They'll be spawning. They'll be sending more larvae out into the harbor, growing new reefs, attracting more species to the habitat. And hopefully this is the boost that they need to continue to grow. That was Katie Mosher of the Billion Oyster Project. So who first came up with this idea? That was the landscape architect Kate Orff. Time magazine named her one of the 100 most influential people of 2023. She has her own design studio, Scape, and teaches at Columbia University, where I went to talk with her. Hurricane Sandy inspired her to design a series of what she calls living breakwaters. You heard Katie Mosher mention them just now. The living breakwaters are oyster reefs that will help reduce the power of the storm surge during a next storm. Kate Orff calls this kind of design oyster texture. Bays across the world are in various states of decline due to sea level rise, excess nitrogen, these kind of combination of factors that affects these intertidal landscapes. The oyster is part of the future, part of the answer. And I was asked by the Museum of Modern Art to do a project for an exhibition that they were hosting called Rising Currents. That was voice texture, and then Superstorm Sandy hit, and then all of a sudden it was like, okay, let's see if we can test some of these ideas about ecological infrastructure in real time. You were already thinking about how oysters could help make the city more resilient long before the hurricane came. That's such foresight. Yes, I would say it's foresight, but it's also incredibly practical. Oyster texture was born from having the seed of the idea of the oyster in my brain, but also looking at maps of New York. It's quite obvious <laughs> that we were protected by this mosaic of coastal ecosystems. We derived our food from them. We farmed them. And so Living Breakwaters was informed by all of that work and also informed by how to bring these layers together, one of rebuilding ecosystems, but second, and more importantly in that context, 
how to build back this coastal protection that we've lost. There are five of these reefs now under construction off the coast of Staten Island, one of the areas of New York that was hardest hit by Hurricane Sandy. These breakwaters are now, of course, artificial, but they're serving a similar purpose that what an intact oyster reef would have done, which is to slow the water, first of all, take that harmful velocity, the wave action out of the water. It does not stop flooding. This is not some kind of quote-unquote solution for flooding. Nothing stops flooding because you have rainwater and you have coastal inundation, you have groundwater, you have a series of interrelated factors. But what they do, which is absolutely critical, is that they dramatically reduce loss and damage and harm. So you're not going to have a home thrown off of its foundations because of a powerful wave. You may have some flooding in your basement, but we need to begin to change our practices and begin to adapt to that. So they slow the water, they clean the water, they help rebuild the beaches. After Superstorm Sandy, we did a big community event, and one that is seared into my brain is walking along a beach with residents who said, this beach used to be 50 feet wide, and you can actually see pipes and lampposts, and you can see how the shoreline had been dramatically reduced just in somebody's lifetime. And so that erosion will be slowed down, halted by the introduction of these breakwaters. Kate Orff sees the living breakwaters as a pilot project for the rest of the United States. And it is not just a matter of the technological expertise needed to build these things. They're also a social project, bringing in the local community to help design them, build them, and maintain them. It's not an idea or a concept that descends and just lands on the ground and then you clip the ribbon and leave. I think the most powerful vehicle for urban transformation is in networks of people who are committed to similar ideas and who share the same goals. This is a piece of physical infrastructure, clearly, that has immense protective benefit. But it's also, in a way, a vehicle for a whole new social community, whether that's fishermen or students or teachers, oyster restoration experts. It's essentially a tool for all of these different communities to come together and persist and be invested in this. What else needs to happen to make the breakwaters realize their potential? <laughs> if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. What we can invest in now is physical, intact landscapes, robust, interconnected landscapes that will help cool our air, that will help filter our water, that will help reduce erosion, because frankly, we have eliminated those landscapes. We've filled in our coastal edges with garbage and straightened them out. So it's not just one project. It's not just one idea. But the breakwaters are part of a layered system of intact physical landscape. So I'm looking for a whole landscape reset where we can think from our waterways to our intertidal landscapes to our upland landscapes and really think about ecological restoration and regeneration, particularly in the places that are most vulnerable to some of these climate issues. I seem to see a transition from the emphasis on technology to building with nature-based solutions, and now more and more talk about climate justice and the people who suffer the most from climate crisis. Is it just that I'm finally waking up, or is there indeed a shift towards the more social aspects of water management? I see a very profound shift in exactly as you've described, where I think that there's this realization that 
water is not a problem to be solved, (laughs) if you will. It is a life force, right? There's an increasing focus on climate justice and water justice. And then there's, I think, an increasing focus that the problems, the way of thinking that got us into this situation is not necessarily the way of thinking that's going to get us to a very different place. And so I think less emphasis on the technocratic top-down solution, a little bit more emphasis on climate justice and on the social life of water is definitely coming more to the fore. By now, I'm almost feeling guilty at having been in New York already for a couple days and not having had any oysters yet, because now I know that the restaurants are one of the most important sources for the shells that need to be put into the breakwaters. The absolute worst thing you can do with an oyster shell is throw it in the garbage. It's a resource for future restoration projects. Here in New York, we have a shell recovery program. Every city on the Gulf Coast and the Atlantic needs to have a shell recovery program to help assist these restoration projects of the future. There's actually a lack of shells right now in the restoration community, and it's very easy to implement restaurants love it because they can keep their shells and donate it to future causes. And hopefully consumers love it. And consumers should demand this, not just be passive about it. That was landscape architect Kate Orff on cleaning up and strengthening the New York Harbor one oyster at a time. Where Kate Orff focuses on cleaner harbors and bays, Leon Poa has devoted herself to rivers. Leon is Dutch, but the movement for drinkable rivers she has created is international. She's not so much an activist as an activator. She brings all sorts of people together, from school kids to mayors, to demand something that should be self-evident, that the water in our rivers be clean enough to drink, just like it used to be. Everywhere around the world, there are rivers, there are watersheds, and in the rivers, all the water, both the surface water and the groundwater are coming together, and it literally connects us all around the world. And not only us people, but also all life forms are dependent on this very small amount of fresh available water. And so that's where the rivers becomes a symbol of where everything is connected to. When did it first become apparent to you that our rivers should be drinkable, as they always were? Was there a specific moment that the light went on above your head? Yeah, that actually is quite connected with here, the Hudson River in northern Quebec. There is the Rupert River that has its mouth in the Hudson Bay and part of the James Bay. From source to sea, I canoed the Rupert River when I was 24. I didn't know that beforehand. So I was there with my filter, but then the local people said to me, you can drink straight from this river. And that was such a beautiful and moving experience. Not even three years later, I returned to this river and the river was not drinkable anymore. There's a lot of mercury now in the water. There was mining happening in that area where they had used mercury. And in the meantime, in those three years, they had started building a dam and diverting the river, which changed the whole dynamic balance of that ecosystem. And that was lost. Ever since the Industrial Revolution, the rivers have been viewed as trash dumps. And it is still easy and profitable for businesses to dump their waste into the water and just let it wash away. The good news is that, 
at least in the Netherlands, the rivers and lakes are not getting any dirtier. The responsible ministry says that they have actually gotten cleaner. Everyone does agree, though, that the water quality still needs to get better. For many of the mayors in Lyon's network, it is a continual struggle to control what ends up in the rivers. In that sense, the Drinkable Rivers movement is up against powerful political and economic forces. I ask Leon what it's like to be in a fight this big. If I would see it as a fight, I would be exhausted. Then it's too big. I call it an adventure, so it's worthwhile pursuing this dream. It's a matter of really wanting a different economy where the drinkable river is an indicator of a healthier economy. It would then be straightforward to say none of the chemicals can be released into the water if they're not conducive to life. It would then simplify all our permit processes because it's just simple. You don't do it. It's so obvious. It's so obvious. But why is it so hard? This is mainly a journey between the heart and the head. And indeed, by not letting growth and only monetary value be in the lead. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the health of our rivers and our water systems could be the measure of success as the gross national product is now? Exactly. That's what I hope. That was Leon Poa, founder of the Drinkable Rivers Movement. My next guest is equally optimistic, passionate even. I go to many places where the circumstances are much worse than in my own country. It's just sad to see how many people have to live. The bad quality of water or the lack of water that they have to deal with. Or the trash in front of their door. Or the trash in front of their river or the kennel that they live. And it's heartbreaking. They deserve something better. This is Dennis von Peppen. And he can give them something better because he is the head of international water programs at the Netherlands Enterprise and Development Agency. For the past 15 years, he has worked on water projects all over the global south. It's getting more and more urgent because the situation is getting completely out of control, to be honest. Are there countries in the world where their drinking water supply is under direct threat? I work, for example, a lot in Kenya and, and also in the Sahel region. And that's where you see because of climate change, but also regular weather patterns, increased droughts that there's an increased competition of the uses of water between water for drinking, but also water for agriculture, water for industrial purposes. But that water issue is getting increasingly pressing for governments and people. It's a hidden threat, and it's something that we see happening now on the ground, but it's not yet in the media. But I think in 10, 50 years, one water disaster after the other in the media. You've worked in many countries all over the global south. And I ask you, which one is particularly dear to your heart because the situation is urgent and because you see something really happening there? And you chose the Indian city of Chennai, which used to be called Madras. Chennai is an absolutely fantastic city in southern India. Very vibrant, very entrepreneurial, fantastic people. But as many parts of the world, that at the cost of the natural system, the economy has taken over the city. A lot of infrastructure has been built. A lot of houses have been built. A lot of factories have been built to the peril, to the neglect of the local water system. And that's affecting the city enormously. So where the level of rainfall is almost similar to the Netherlands, there's still in periods of the year either extreme droughts or extreme floods. And that's mainly because that natural system has been neglected. There's roads now everywhere. There's concrete everywhere. There's buildings everywhere. So the water has nowhere to go. 
So either it stays and it floods, or it runs straight into the ocean and the water's not being maintained and retained. And on top of that, the population has grown extremely much over the past decades, but the, the water treatment infrastructure has not kept up with that pace. So a lot of sewage water goes straight into the surface water. Industries are dumping wastewater immediately into the surface water, and that's causing extremely distressing situations where you have water trucks going around the city, trucking in water from outside the city to supply water into the city, causing extreme pollution and noise and dangerous situations. You have a lot of disease in the city because the surface water is so polluted. So Chennai is, is constructing desalinization plants to make drinking water out of seawater for drinking water supply, which should not be necessary regarding the fact that there is sufficient rainwater during the year. So you come in as the Dutch and you see that really everything that can go wrong with the water system in Chennai has gone wrong. Where do you start? So we always start with the community. And in order to reach the community, we work with local NGOs. And then you include, of course, also the local municipality and the private sector, the companies that are working in that area. And you put them around the table and you start a dialogue on those solutions. And then you co-create the solution together. And we as Dutch offer sometimes some advice on what's technically possible, but more what we do actually is facilitate that process of dialogue. What does Chennai actually look like? It's in southern India. It's in a, I believe, a tropical climate. Yes, proto-cyclones as well. Yes. Ah, uh -huh. It's a beautiful coastal city with a beautiful beach, but that has been built on an historic system of wetlands and ponds. So it has had a very beautiful, naturally balanced water system. But of course, due to economic growth and population growth, the city has expanded very rapidly and greatly over the past decades. And many roads and buildings were built. And basically the whole city has been put under a layer of concrete. Those hard services are not particularly good for water management. The city used to have quite sophisticated system of ponds and lakes for its water management. Interestingly, a few of them are now used as temple tanks. So, of course, religion is very important in Chennai and India. You have a lot of big temples and those have tanks. Many of the historical natural ponds have been converted into temple tanks, which are also very interesting as a means for water management. One of the projects that came out of our efforts, temple tanks are being used for recharging groundwater and for purification purposes. Currently a beautiful pilot project for restoring one of those historic ponds at a convent is being built. And that's a good example of a project that if you upscale them all over the city, it will really improve the resilience of the city and the beauty of the city and the living quality in the city. If you see how the city government has allowed the situation to deteriorate, do you still have trust that they'll be able to improve it? Oh, absolutely. Because the Chennai government is very capable. But you also have to understand that, especially with many countries in the global south, also India had to make choices. And often the choice was because of economic development and social development. The choice was rather made for building roads or airports or houses or ports. And that have been, has been done now. So I think the next steps, as in many countries in the global south, the next step is the improvement of water management. That was Dennis von Peppe of the Netherlands Enterprise and Development Agency. One of the people responsible for improving Dutch water quality is Mark Harbers, the Dutch Minister of Infrastructure and Water Management. Progress has been made, as we can see from the return of otters and beavers to Dutch waters. Harbors has promised to increase both the budget and the enforcement 
to improve water quality. That quality is also threatened by climate change. The water is heating up and there's less of it, so the pollution is more concentrated. Harbors is also urging business to clean up its act. At a conference for business leaders during the New York Water Week, he gave the closing speech and urged them to use less water, pollute less, and make water part of every boardroom decision. He says it's not only the right thing to do, it also makes good business sense. I snagged him right after his speech and asked him, are the boardrooms listening? I feel this sense that everyone is dying to implement all these actions because the problems are clear. Almost every country has problems uh, concerning water. Sometimes the problems are even threefold, like for us in the Netherlands, we had to fight for water for eight centuries to keep dry feet. But in the meantime, we've had the fourth dry summer in five years' time. So we're, in the meantime, also experienced with drought. And we also have a problem with the pollution of the water. And that's the three problems that almost every country has with water. So it's time for action. The UN conference ended with 829 commitments to a water action agenda. In the meantime, the Netherlands is using its centuries of experience with water to help developing countries. We are also helping out numerous countries in the world. We have bilateral relationships for decades already to help other countries develop with our water knowledge. We also bring all these countries together here in a new international panel on deltas and coastal zones, over 20, 25 countries, so make it a true multilateral platform. Our knowledge can also be of help in the world, but on the other hand, we need new knowledge as well. Having experienced these dry summers, we can learn from other countries what to do to preserve water for dry summers and also to motivate people to spoil the water a little bit less as they do sometimes because in the Netherlands, we are so adjusted to water that we sometimes take it for granted too much. The minister warned that water has become an economic risk. He's right. Online business magazine Quartz, for example, says that companies ranging from cereal producers to tech firms like Microsoft that depend on water to cool their data centers are vulnerable to water-related disruptions. These costs can run into many billions of dollars. And it quotes a report stating that about two-thirds of big corporations manage their water risks, quote, inadequately. Well, that sounds like an understatement to me. I think it's crucial for businesses to involve the water in their business plans and in their way of making a business because if you would only account for all the water scarcity risks that we have in numerous countries around the world, they will in the end affect the companies and the businesses as well. So it would only be wise for these companies to implement everything that has to do with water in their boardroom decisions. Otherwise, they might fear that they won't exist anymore in 20 or 30 years' time. That was the Dutch Minister of Infrastructure and Water Management, Mark Harbers, urging business to clean up its act or else. My parents were swimmers, my sister was a swimmer, all my aunts and uncles were swimmers, so there was no choice. I just had to swim. That is Kirsten van Sante, a Dutch journalist and swimmer in open water, a so-called wild swimmer. She even wrote a book about it. She feels a deep, instinctive connection to water. 
Wild swimmers are what she calls the canaries in the coal mine. These small birds which were taken inside the mines and if they died, there was a big problem with the oxygen. Swimmers are just like that. If we get sick, if we cannot enter the water, if it is forbidden for us, there is something really wrong. And in this light, you can say that swimmers are environmental activists. Look at the interest of swimmers and you look at the interest of all people. Wild swimming has become hugely popular, especially since yes, COVID. Yes, I think for people it was a way to break free from their own houses and to reconnect with nature. Swimming was a life savior for a lot of people who felt locked up, isolated. And for me too, I have a group of swimmers and it was forbidden to go outside and meet a lot of people. But we were going to our swimming place, put on our wetsuits and we went swimming for half an hour or an hour together. And then we came out of the water happier than we entered it. But as wild swimmers... You see that our water is sometimes not clean enough to swim in. That's a big paradox. It's dangerous. There are a lot of boats, a lot of traffic, a lot of chemicals, medicines, antibiotics in the water. There are a lot of dangers. And at the same time, swimming is getting more and more popular. So that's a paradox. Swimmers have to swim. They are more or less addicted to it. Me too. And we just take the risk. We put our head in the sand as if nothing is the matter. Why is it worth it ah. for you? I don't like to talk about all this risk because we swimmers, we love this water so much that we are willing to take some risks. I think every human being has a special feeling about water. Once upon a time, a long time ago, we all crawled out of the sea onto the land. As babies, we already floated in the salted water inside the wombs of our mothers. Our bodies are for a big part water. So we are water and we have a longing back to our origin. For me, if I enter water, whether it's chlorine, sweet or salt water, I have a feeling of returning to something very familiar. When I have spent some time in the water, I feel better, I feel more relaxed. The whole black and white land life with all the rules and all the things you have to do and have to say and how to behave, everything gets fluid in this water and I have reconnected with something inside myself. Swimming makes me a much better person. That was Dutch journalist and wild swimmer Kirsten van Santen. I've spoken to all these people and I still don't really understand why we have done this to ourselves. I guess for profit reasons. But isn't it ironic then that the water issues are now threatening those very same profits? We're the victim of our own short-term thinking. We've forgotten that the health of the natural system is intimately linked to our own health. We're not separate from the water. We are the water. We must find our way back to drinkable rivers, to swimmable lakes and harbors. Because if we don't, we will soon discover 
that we are, all of us, canaries in a self-created coal mine. Water Talks is a program by me, Tracy Metz, written and produced together with Jonathan Gruber. The show notes have links to the work of this week's guests, including the Billion Oyster Project. Make sure you check it out. Our theme song is called Into the Unknown by Poddington Bear, with additional music from Jason Shaw's Running Waters. Water Talks was made possible by the Dutch Ministry of Infrastructure and Water Management. Next time on the show, Too Unequal. I'll be speaking with, among others, the director of UN Habitat, Maimouna Maud Sharif, Columbia professor Thad Pulaski, and environmental activist Murta Shannon. That's next time on Water Talks. I'm Tracy Metz. Thanks for listening.